0: My dad is the best dad in the world because he has always been there for me. He also has taught us by example to do the right thing always. Although his job requires him to work a lot, he makes time for his family and always makes it to our special events. And with four kids, that's tough. If we really need something, we know we can always count on our dad to be there for us. I don't know what I would do without him. You know, today is Father's Day, and we're going to talk about What it means to be that father, the four faces of a man. You know, because men take on different roles in their life, and many times those roles demand of us certain skills and talents. And when we look at the Word of God, it has a lot to say about men and about their relationship with their spouse and with their children, even more so with their God. The first face of a man is that of a king in Genesis, the second chapter, verse 15 through 18. It's a passage of scripture that we're familiar with. But in the first chapter of verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move around the land and around the ground. Man was made a king, he was given a kingdom. He was given a kingdom that he was to look over and that he was to care about. He was placed in the Garden of Eden, and there in the Garden of Eden, God gave him a mission. He took the man, he placed him there, and he said, I want you to work this property, I want you to work this garden, I want you to take care of it. The king is one who cares, cares for that which God has given him responsibility. It says there he is to work that land. And in the Hebrew, that talks about service about serving. You know, man needs a job. Man needs a a project out there. A man needs to be able to work with his hands and to accomplish that which God has for him. One of the hardest things in the last few weeks has been to see my dad, who believed in work. He believed that no matter what your age, if you were able to get up in the morning, if you were able to breathe, if you were able to move, you got to go out there and do something. Put your hands on something, hammer something, tear something up so you can put it back together again. Whatever it is, work with your hands. And now he finds himself in a nursing home, sitting in a chair, somebody moving him from room to room, someone feeding him. And he'll look at you and he'll go, I don't like this. I don't want this. This is not what I was made for. This is not who I am. Man was created to care, to work, to do those things that God has has set before him, to plant, to prune, to subdue the glories of God. Man is to care for his family, for his property, for his future. And 1 Timothy 4.16 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God expects us to take care of those that we love. He expects us to take care of our family. The king is a caring man. The king is one who provides direction, provides leadership. You know, we recount the story in Joshua where Joshua stands before the nation of Israel. And he challenges them that day. And he says, If it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. For whether the gods which you fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, Adam was given the responsibility to name the animals. I can only imagine how long that would have taken. I can only imagine trying to think up all those names. But not only was he given that responsibility, he was given the responsibility to be a leader. You know, many times we go, well, leadership comes with position. I believe leadership is at any level that you may be. God places you in a place, and he expects you to lead those that are around you. He expects us as men to lead and to serve the Lord, to make that determination, to make sure that our wife and our spouse, to make sure that our children and those that visit with us, to make sure that everyone knows we're here to serve the Lord. I don't have to put a plaque over my door. I don't have to write it across my chest or across my forehead, but people will know that we serve the Lord. We are a family of God. We have a vision for our family. Do you know where your family's going? Do you have a thought of what you want to be like in five years and ten years? Do you look at your children and dream and imagine and desire for them a vision in their life? We as men need to have that vision. We need to take the leadership in our families. We need to take the leadership in our marriages. We need to lead our children. They ought to know that there is a place that the decision is going to be made. It's not always wait till mom gets home. It is now I'm going to make the decision. It is now that we are going to lead our children. The king is also one who provides justice. In Psalms, the 99th chapter, verse 4, he says, The king is mighty. He loves justice. You know, we as dads need to understand fairness. I had a family member who told me, well, I'm going to treat my kids just the same. And the Lord's blessed him with three girls. And I'm thankful for that. I just sit at home and I just, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. He says, we're going to treat them just exactly alike. And, you know, I found that that's not always fair, is it? That's not always fair because there are some children that need a little bit more help. There's some children that need a little bit more guidance. There are some children you need to go and talk to every single night. And there's others, You all you have to do is say, do that, and guess what? It's done. And a father, a man, the king, understands justice. He understands that the penalties vary by the sin that is involved. He understands there's certain things that will impress upon a child where it will not impress upon another. You could ask one child to sit in the corner all day long, and they'll just be in heaven. You know, nobody's bothering them. They're just sitting there enjoying their own fantasy world. They've been around the world two or three times. And you can send another one and tell them not to talk to them and they will be in purgatory because they got to talk to somebody. And they'll talk to you if you'll talk to them. And they'll just keep on going. But we need to understand that the king understands justice. He understands fairness. He avoids partiality as in James, the second chapter. He understands what it means. But you see, the king is more than one who cares and who provides direction and leadership and justice. He's also a warrior. In Genesis, the second chapter, verse 17, he says, That uh, when you look at that passage, he says, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam was given the mission to protect the garden, to protect this tree, to keep people away, to keep himself away from that, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was given that mission, and that mission was hard and difficult because that warrior spirit that was within him had to be developed. He was there to care and protect for that which was given unto him from the natural enemies that were there. You know, we talk about this idea called the warrior ethos. And when I think about the warrior ethos, the warrior spirit, it is that spirit that compels the soldier to never quit. That compels the soldier to endure the hardships Of being away from home that compels a soldier to sleep in the most unusual places, to eat the most unusual foods, to endure all that is there. And when I think about the warrior ethos, I have to think about Rambo, okay? You know, Rambo will jump mountains and swim rivers and oceans, and he will do whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes to accomplish the mission. And that's... So that's the sense of this warrior ethos, this warrior spirit. And we as men need to understand that that warrior spirit is part of who we are. It is the part of self-denial, that we ought to deny ourselves the ability to be satisfied so that we can see the greater good. Matthew 16, chapter verse 24 and 26 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whosoever wants, for whoever wants to save his life, will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me will find it. You know this thing called self uh, self denial. It's a difficult part for many of us, because you see, as a man, as a father, as a father in particular, it requires us to do some things we're not used to. It requires us to go on some vacations. We don't necessarily want to go on. I had planned a great vacation in Virginia. Virginia is a great historical commonwealth. And we decided we were going, well, I decided that we were going to go to all the battlefields. We'd go to Yorktown. We'd go to Petersburg, come to Annapolis, you know, all- and just go all around and just have a great time. My daughters were 11 14, I think we got as far we got just past Petersburg and I had rebellion on me okay <laughs> they absolutely refused to go any farther so we changed our plan to King's Dominion to the outlet along I-95 <laughs> and we did those things because you see as a dad there has to be some self-denial and I've learned how to go shopping, okay? I don't like doing it, but I've learned how to do it. It's okay. You know, it doesn't hurt but for a little while. And But you see, we have to commit ourselves to doing those things that may not satisfy us. We may have to give up some of our toys, I may not be able to buy the things I want to buy because there's braces to buy and there's dance classes and there's football and there's baseball and I have to give up those toys. I may not even be able to buy the car I want. You know, it may end up being that van sitting out in the driveway, okay, that has 15 seats in it, you know, with radios and televisions hanging from the ceiling. Whatever will keep the kids happy, right? They get the van. I told my wife that uh, when I joined the military, I was going to go out and buy myself the biggest, baddest firebird I could find. And to this day, I still haven't got it, okay? Because there's always some other need that comes into this kind of thing. But being a dad is part of that sacrifice, is it not? It's part of that giving. It's part of that self-denial. But he also says that that self-denial and that part of that warrior spirit is to resist evil. 2 Corinthians ten three through 6 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. We, as warriors, as, the, as dads, as fathers, we need to understand that we're in a war. We're in a battle for the lives and the minds of our children and for the minds and the hearts of our family. And we need to resist, and we need to understand how to fight this battle because it is not a battle that is straightforward. It is not a battle that is evident to many of us. Many times Satan and his techniques are to come in the back door and surprise attacks. We need to resist the lies and the stealing. We need to become men of integrity. We need to be able to do the right thing for the right reason because many times we do the right thing But we resist every step of the way. We do it for the wrong reason, and the blessing is not there. But God tells us that we're in this war, and men ought to lead in this battle, that we ought to stand up against the cultural temptations that are about us, those that are denying who Jesus is, denying that God is the creator and master and Lord of our lives, denying the truth of God's word that teach us that we ought to tolerate, that we ought to sit back, that we have to accept evil in a day when God tells us to stand, be firm, be committed, be willing to pay the price. And he's given us there in Ephesians the 6, that full armor. He's given us all the equipment that we need. And he tells us there in the 18th verse of Ephesians 6, "...and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests." With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. He tells us to be alert, to be be prepared. You know, the hardest thing I know to do is stay up all night with a weapon in your hand and guard a gate. It is the hardest thing to do because you get sleepy and you don't hear things. And and you want to talk and you want to be able to... Uh, be doing something but it feels like you're doing absolutely nothing you're freezing to death you're aggravated that you have to stay up all night and sometimes you let down your guard and sometimes you let it down to the point that you get taken advantage of we had our first sergeant that one of the most important things that you can do is is keep your weapon right To lose your weapon is a sin unto death. You will pay desperately if you lose your weapon. The sergeant major loves that because at about 3 o'clock in the morning while everybody's asleep, he's walking through the tents, and he's looking for weapons, weapons that are unsecure. And if you didn't know how to keep your weapon in your sleeping bag, okay, you normally lost your weapon. And in the morning when you woke up, you had to go see the sergeant major. And goes, Sergeant Major, I lost my weapon. Oh, Lord. There's a lot of things in this world you want to do. That's not one thing you want to do. Because he will rip the living hide off you. And you will pay for it desperately. God has called us to be on guard, to keep our weapon ready. To be prepared against the attacks of Satan because they're going to come. And they're going to come when you least expect it. They're going to come when you're sitting in church. They're going to come when you're praying. They're going to come when you're reading your Bible. The attacks are going to come from all angles, from all shapes, and in most people that you didn't even expect them to come from. He says be alert. Be praying. Be that warrior. But notice the third thing that he tells us. That the... Man today is not only carrying the face of a warrior, but he has the face the face of a mentor. There in Genesis, the second chapter, verse sixteen, God instructs Adam exactly in what he's to do. He says, "I want you to take care of this garden, but I want you to protect and not eat of this particular fruit." When you read Genesis, the third chapter, verse two and three, where Satan comes to uh, comes to Eve. Notice what Eve does. She sort of gives an interpretation to the instructions that were given to Adam. Adam was there to mentor, to shape, to to be that encourager, that coach, that coach that motivates, that listens, that we as a family become a team, that we're working together to accomplish certain things and that we need to motivate, and we need to encourage one another, and we need to lift one another up. And the man is the part of that family that ought to be doing that. He ought to be going through the house encouraging his children. He ought to be encouraging his spouse. He ought to be encouraging those that are around him. He needs to be the mentor of his family. He needs to be the coach. He needs to understand great opportunity. You know, I probably... When I raised my kids, I didn't understand the opportunities that I had as a dad. I didn't understand the opportunities that my children would mimic who I am and what I think. That they would be watching far beyond what I could imagine. And maybe it was because it's two girls, I didn't feel that connection. But I realized with a grandson, they watch everything you do, okay? I have a phone and I have a password on it. Okay? The last thing in this world I would ever do is tell Ben my password. Okay? It's the last thing I would ever do. He goes, Pop, I wanna see your, your phone. I went, Okay. And he's in my telephone. I went, Who told you my password? He just grins and says, I saw you put it in. <laughs> you see, as a dad, as a grandfather, as a man, People are watching you. They're watching you when you don't think they're watching. They're seeing things you can't imagine that they're seeing. And they're taking it and they're placing it in the account. I'm amazed how kids are so absorbent today. They will take and they will bring it in and they will meditate on it and they will make it their own. If you're doing it, they'll do it. If you're saying it, they'll say it. If you're going to those places, they'll go to those places. You are to be that leader, that coach. You are to be that mentor. You are to be that model. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter verse 1, he says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. we got athletes today. Our famous Barkley, right? Who says what? I am... Well, I won't use his terms. He declares himself not to be a mentor, right? He is not to be that example. But he is, whether he likes it or whether he doesn't, isn't he? People look up to him. People respect him. People look at his way of life, and they want to emulate it. Men, people are watching. Your children are watching you. When you say those words and you don't think anybody hears, guess what? They hear. And then they're going to say them, and when they say them, you're going to want to wash their mouth out with soap. You're going to beat them severely over the head and shoulders because they said what? Exactly what you said. They're watching. They're listening. They're storing it away. They're keeping it in their lives. You know, as a mentor and as a man, we ought to be communicating. Communicating about the Spirit of God, about what it means to be a Christian. Proverbs, the fourth chapter, verse one says, listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning to do and not forsake my teaching. Men, are you teaching your spouse and your children that church is important? Or is it more important to be at the lake and more important to be at the beach? And even when you go to the beach, what do you do? Is church important when you go on vacation? You're teaching your children this. They're watching you. Well, you know, we're in a strange place. Yeah, so what? We as Baptists have a church on every corner. If you go to Gulf Shores, I can tell you a church to go to. Charles... Charles and Betty go to a church. They told me about it. It's a great place to go. You don't need to miss church on Sunday morning. Well, I'm on vacation. You can't be on vacation from God. You're a man. You've made a commitment. You're leading your family. You're sold out to Christ. That's what you're saying on Sunday morning when you come to Meadowbrook. What are you doing when you go down to Gulf Shores? Your children are watching. And what do they think they're going to do when they go? They're not going to be there. He says to communicate about life, to communicate about our commitment, to show them that it's important not only to be in church, but to pray. Well, we don't pray over our meals because I get embarrassed. You need to lead your family in prayer. You need to lead your family in giving. Well, I give what's in my pocket on Sunday morning. But we need to be teaching our children, and we need to be teaching our spouse what it means to be committed to God. We need to be involved in the ministries and service unto God. If you haven't been on Builders for Christ, you've missed great opportunity. We talked about self-sacrifice. If you haven't taken a week's vacation and gone, you've missed an opportunity to serve the Lord. You've missed an opportunity to see how 180 people in one building can get stuff done. I have no way. I know how they're doing it. Okay, uh, working a little sheetrock in my younger days, I understand construction sites, and I usually want somebody in charge. I'm not used to having 180 people in charge, okay, and they're all getting it done, and getting it done well. The Lord blesses, but we ought to be in a ministry that God has for us. We ought to be mentors. Lastly, men ought to have the face of a friend. In Genesis, the second chapter, verse 28, he says, And the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helpmate, our helper suitable for him. You know, God looked at all creation, okay? On the first day, what did he say? Good. On the second day, what did he say? Good. On the third day, fourth day, fifth day, he created it all. And then he looked at man and he went, <clears throat> I think there needs some help here. Okay. He needs some help. He just can't do this by himself. And the amazing thing I find about that is that he creates a helper. He creates one who complements him. You know, we are in this world that if you go online today, they have all these uh, online sites that you can find a spouse. You find a spouse or whatever they are, whoever you're looking for, and you fill out these things and they try to match them so that you're the same person with the same likes and the same everything? Well, you know, I don't think that's the way the Lord had it. I think the Lord created complementary individuals. So that they do what? So the things I don't like to do, Jackie likes to do. So the things that I like to do, Jackie doesn't like to do. And, you know, so that we can encourage and so that we can do what? We can fit together. Now, fitting together is not fun, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, Because if you fit together, somebody has to give in these movements. You just don't fit together easily. I like my toothpaste rolled one way, she likes it rolled another way. I like my closet in total disarray, and she likes it with some order to it. Now, that's not true, is it? Because you know I don't like a closet in disarray. At least not for long, okay? Not for long. But what Jackie has strengths in... is normally my weakness. And she'll go do it. And what I have strength in is usually her weaknesses. And we come together. And what does the scripture say there? And they became one flesh. We became a team. We could conquer the world. We could overcome any discouragement, any disappointment. We have become one in Christ. And that was God's plan, to create a man and a woman, to help each other and to complement each other and to be one. What happens if you're alike? What happens if you're two people that are exactly alike? You sort of overshadow each other, don't you? One person just gets evaporated in the other. And that's not what God wants to happen. He wants everyone to use their talents and skills together. And then he talks to us about something that's even more important. He talks to us about having that ultimate friend. That ultimate friend. You know, Salisa and Charles sang about that today, didn't they? Someone that is greater than we could ever imagine. You see, as a dad and as a man, God wants you to be his friend. And we need him to be our friend. He says there in the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jack and I have gotten into this bad habit of watching the Big Bang Theory. And if you've ever watched the Big Bang Theory, it's off the wall, okay? Okay. It's a bunch of geeks living together, and it has its problems. But one of them always knocks on the door, Penny, 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 aggravates the fool. Okay, out of Penny. Well, you know what? The Book of Revelation says Jesus standing at our heart's door, and he's knocking, and he says, "I want you. To, I want to come in." And I want to sup with you. I want to sit with you. I want to eat with you. I want to be your friend. I want to be the ultimate friend that will meet all your needs. But he he also says, not only do I stand at the door and knock, and I, I want to come in. But he says, if you'll ask, if you'll confess your sins, I'll forgive you all your sins. Now, you see, that may not seem big and important at certain times in our lives, but you know, the reality of it is, is that we're all sinners. We sin consistently. And when we sin, it leaves scars and wounds in our lives. My mom and dad, one Sunday, they liked to sleep every Sunday afternoon. And so when we were about seven, eight, nine years of age, they would say, Go out and play. Just don't get in trouble. Okay? And we'll tell you when to come back in. Well, the neighbors next door had just bought a new washing machine, a big box. And they had put put blankets on it and rocks on it to keep the blankets steady. And my dad and mom said, don't go out of the yard. But that box was intriguing. It was just calling my name. I had to go get in that box. And I went and got in that box, and somebody got up and pulled the blanket off the top, and a rock fell down. And it hit me right on my hand and broke my finger and flipped the bone around. So mom and dad took me to the doctor, had to have two or three surgeries. That was back in the days of ether, okay? It was not this easy, close your eyes, and the next thing you remember, you're awake. It was struggle the whole way, okay? I still have the scars off both sides of the finger. My mom and dad have forgiven me. They've probably forgotten it. But I carry the scars. And I'll carry the scars to my death. God will forgive you. He'll wash you white as snow. You'll carry the scars. There will be wounds. And the best passage of this that I know is in Isaiah 61st, chapter verse 10. And he says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he does what? For he clothes me, he takes his righteousness, all my skin, all my, my sin, and all of the scars and all the wounds that I have. He takes his righteousness and he puts it on me. He just covers me up so I can't see, so he can't see all that sin that's there. And I stand before him in his righteousness. You know, we can't find it in ourselves many times to forgive other people. How many times do people just bring it back up all the time, don't they? You make a mistake, and they keep bringing it up. You make a mistake, and they keep, you know, they just cannot let it go. The blessing here, ladies and gentlemen, is that when Jesus forgives you, and he clothes you in his righteousness, he casts that sin into the deepest sea. And he remembers it no more. It doesn't make any difference what other people say. It doesn't make any difference what your parents say, what your grandparents say, what your neighbor says, what your children say, what your spouse says. It doesn't make any difference because Jesus doesn't remember it anymore. And if that doesn't make you shout then you have missed the boat, okay? Because I'm clean. I'm righteous before God. I can stand before his throne. I can receive his blessing. And he loves me. And he loves me. Dad, are you washed in the blood? Dad, it, it is the friend of your life, Jesus Christ, does your wife know that Jesus is the most important thing in your being? Does your children know Jesus is the most important thing in your being? Mom, is Jesus your best friend? Can you tell him anything? Young person, now's the time to know him, now's the time to seek him in your life. You may not have done anything terribly wrong in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of Jesus, if you've sinned, you're lost and you need that forgiveness. God loves us and cares for us. The question for us today is, what are we going to do with him? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open up, I'll come in and I'll sup with him. I'll eat with him. I'll be his friend. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed as the pianist comes to play. Satan has been attacking you this week. He's been attacking you on the left and on the right. He's almost convinced you that you're just no good. He's almost convinced you That you're defeated. He's almost convinced you that there is no hope. That there is no answer. That there is no God. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to declare to you, there is a God. There is hope. And there is a way of victory. And you can have that this morning. You can have that. In a few moments, we're going to stand. The pianist is going to play. And this offer, the opportunity to come and find Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The opportunity for husbands and wives to come and kneel at this altar and make it right before God. The opportunity to be clothed in His righteousness. The opportunity to be made white as snow. The opportunity to become a man of your family to become the king to become the mentor to become the friend father god we ask now that as we take this opportunity that you all have your way in that which we do before you encourage us and may we make that decision before you for we ask it in christ's name amen